Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Take two. <laughs> so uh, I think some of you probably know we did have technical difficulties last night. Yes, we, we did. We cleared them all up. Yes, we have. Uh, and we're starting fresh, 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 fresh. That's right. <laughs> um, oh, I did want to um, reiterate or something I did say last night. And that is like an update on my feud with Ryan Darling, which is not really a feud. But uh, last week's episode, I kind of gently or like funnily (laughs) went off on Ryan. Desi was having a a bit of a day that night. Right. So, but me and Ryan, she came on our our Facebook page and was like dying laughing. She's like, oh my God. Like, and she even apologized, which she didn't even have to do that. I mean, I wasn't really mad at her. She was really sweet and a good sport. And like I said, we would probably be bitches together. And it's true. We are, we are now, uh, you know, I'm not going to say best bitches because you're my best bitch. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but I we're all friends that. and everything's all, everything's all good. Cool. And she knows now that I have had the flu for a month and a half and she's much more sympathetic to my plight with the cough drop. So all is all is well. If anyone knows Desi's life story, this is probably the worst thing that's ever happened to her. Right. This, this <laughs> cold that she's had for the past month and a half. And now I know what true abuse is. <laughs> My body has never felt more violated and abused than it has the past month and a, and a half. And I'm including all childhood <laughs> sexual assault. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, yes. Anyway. We're not cutting any of that out. Nope. We just wanted to, you know give, what? A, we just is... wanted to give a shout out to Ryan because yeah. we wanted to give a Ryan. positive shout out to her. We, you know, we do both. Yeah, we do. <laughs> we will call you fucking out and then we will... Uh, support you and yeah. welcome you back because we the love fold. all our listeners our listeners are i really amazing. we we are so lucky we really do have good listeners we do um so. i really like uh getting to know people on our facebook page yeah. and so you can come get to know us there too totally so i'm gonna give a shout out right now to our patreon contributors that we got in the last week thank you guys very much this week we had jessica michael louise we had our friend alan what up alan hey, alan we had Richard and we had Betsy today. Great. And I'm going to actually give another uh, special shout out to Molly McAleer. Hi, Molly. Who is a Patreon supporter and a huge friend of the show. She is. Um, if you don't mo- know Molly, you can follow her on Twitter. Um, <clears throat> I think it's just at malls, right? Yes. Um, she also has an amazing podcast called Please Advise that Rachel and I were on. So you can check out that episode and then yeah. catch up all uh, on the other episodes. And she also has another um, podcast that I feel like our listeners might really enjoy, which is called Mother May I Sleep with Podcast. And in that show, Molly uh, has a guest on and she and her guests recap Lifetime movies. Uh, several of the movies are crime related. There's a Jodi Arias one, a Scott Peterson one. 
Uh, I think a Mary Kay Letourneau <laughs> one. It's, so there's yeah. classic Lifetime movies that are not crime, but the crime ones might be of particular interest to you. But they're all fun and funny. Uh, it's so. a show I'm desperate to be a guest on. Right. It's such a great So concept. check out Molly. That's like the special, that's Molly. That's the Molly Corner of this week's show. Yes. <laughs> I think actually a lot of our listeners, or some of them came from Molly's sort of recommending the show. So we wanted to give her a special shout out. Yeah. Uh, what else we got? We oh, got Versace. Okay, Versace. So we're going to go back and recap that. Rachel we're, had some homework. I had some homework to do. Uh, unfortunately, last week I did not watch episode three. And I'm just going to give a very, 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 very brief uh, recap of that. Not recap, but I'm just going to say Her, that. like I, two cents. My two cents. Like Larry King's two cents that he does sometimes on Twitter. Oh, right. Or like I was thinking of uh, Jerry Springer's final thoughts. Oh, my God. I lo- okay, this is Rachel Fisher's final thought. I loved episode three. Judith Light is spectacular and a vision and an LGBT icon. I love her. I thought she her performance was stunning. Um, Andrew Cunanan, a.k.a. Darren Chris is horrifying and I hate Andrew Cunanan more and more as a human being every time I watch the show. Like, I mean, obviously I fucking hated him right. learning about him when we did our Versace episode, but, but seeing it sort of in seeing action, it yeah. in action and the way Darren Chris portrays him is like chilling to me. Right. So, uh, I really loved episode three. I owe Ryan Murphy a huge apology because I was, uh, talking a lot of shit about the first two episodes of this series. You don't owe him an apology because the first two episodes were not great. <laughs> I, love I think I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad he listened to us as if he, he taped episode three after our reviews. You know what? I feel I'm just going to like think that he did. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So episode four, um, I thought was equally as good as episode three. Agreed. And I don't know what it is. Like these standalone episodes are just working way better for me. I feel like they're more in depth. I'm really drawn into the story. I care about the victims. Like yes. that's not, that's not a slight about Versace at all, but I, I just really cared about these people. The, uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, even though we know Versace's life and who he was as a public figure, there's so, I felt so much more of a connection. It could be because we've seen them together with Andrew and we know the outcome. So we just, it's sort of more, compelling yeah that to kind of see it. them alive and knowing that it's coming in a way I don't know yeah and especially I, this episode he was with them the whole episode and it's just it was chilling and uh, and stressful even though we know the outcome it's like you still want you want him, him to, to get away yeah. you want him to you want him to be like this guy's holding me hostage right now and right because he I mean in the way they portrayed it at least he had a lot of opportunities to just bail I mean and you're kind of screaming at the tv like why why isn't he telling someone why isn't he telling someone but you know when you're in that situation well when you're in that situation and I also feel like the way they portrayed it at least it seemed like he cared about Andrew in a in a small way at least like he wanted him to turn himself in right and do the right thing so that kind of made it even sadder to me because I would have definitely been like fuck you (laughs) I'm out of here like right do you know what I mean like I don't know. I I I thought it was a combination of uh, David. That was his name, David right. Madsen, being frozen in fear, and also sort of having this like, well, I you know I've no, I mean like the fact is they they had a friendship or a love re- relationship for a year and a half prior to that right. incident. So it's like you it it's not 
it's believable that he would like have this glimmer of hope that Andrew might do the right thing. Like, right. please just tell me and show me that you're not the monster that you're showing yourself to be right now. I think the hard thing for me would have been to get over the murder of Jeff. Yeah. Like if he hadn't seen that, I could see thinking he could get Andrew to turn himself in. But that was a crazy, brutal murder. It was crazy. I mean, I mean and he was probably fucking in shock too, right. obviously. Like, no, I'm not so... blaming him at all. But no. it's, uh, I think that I'm, my point is that that's why I think that episode felt so tense for me. It um, was a lot. And I really did like the, uh, the like subplot with, David's father too. I, I did felt too. that that was really effective. I thought, right, it could have been really cheesy, and it and wasn't. It, it definitely worked for me too. Right, and I, I'm definitely not someone who's normally on board with that kind of stuff. Like it has to be done right, and I did like it. Right, it was sad. It was I mean, really. It was, it was the the ending of this episode was brutal. It was hard. One sort of comedic moment, and Rachel and I both agree. I think that it stood out to both of us. Yes, was in the car ride, and it's it was comedic, but at the same time chilling. The pump up the jam. Uh, sing along in Andrew the car. Andrew <laughs> has taken David hostage at this point, and they are riding around in uh, the Jeep, Andrew's Jeep, and Pump Up the Jam, I think it's by Technotronics, yeah. <laughs> uh, comes on the radio, and Andrew Cunanan is singing. And my my one note with this scene was that this is how I know Darren Chris, the actor, is straight, is because he didn't sing the hook of that right. song. He just did Pump Up the Jam. Right. I'm like, that's no, a total straight move. That's such a straight guy move to do. It's like, you got to sing the get your booty on yeah. the floor tonight, make my day. <laughs> yeah. You got to sing that part if that right. song comes on. No. So, but he didn't. But it was effective. It was yeah. that scene. It was, was good. chilling because I, I always love a good combination of dark and like, you know, sort of upbeat. Combined. Totally. Yeah, that's my, I love it. That's my jam. Uh, that's my pump up the jam. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. So I'm excited now. I think next week we'll be focused on Jeff and his backstory a bit more. Yeah. And I'm on board. With I'm on board. Now, and I'm curious how they're going to fill it out and make me care about Versace. Me too. I mean, in Not the that sh- I as far as the show goes. Right. It, I'm very curious how they're going to... Because I know that Versace is coming back for uh, episode five. Okay. Episode five. So that's Because I watched the preview. Right. So I am very curious. We'll see. We will see. Anyway, that's the wrap up of the <laughs> assassination TV corner. <laughs> Dude, I have been on a roll lately on Twitter and Desi's called me out. Desi dunked on me hard the other night because I tweeted. I just watched the movie The Ritual on Netflix, which if you haven't seen it and you love horror movies, go watch it. It's such a great it's so great. I loved it. And so I was raving about it on Twitter after I watched it. And I was being very sincere about it because I, I meant it, what I said, that I right. liked the movie. And Desi was like, what the fuck is this? Rachel's movie corner? <laughs> and then I did it again today. With TV. With, t- with a TV show with a Boy Meets World episode. I was like, I really love this Boy Meets World episode. And I trained Rachel well. She dunked on herself I dunked me. on myself. I said, is this Rachel's TV corner? <laughs> Anyway, that's, that's that's my Twitter wrap up from this week. Um, Let's so talk about our main crime. Our today. main murder. Uh, well, this is a story that I I think I was going to do this a few months ago, and for some reason I switched it, um, possibly because there was an anniversary or or something else was sort of more topical. Right. But this is now topical, so I am back to it, and that is the death of Natalie Wood. Um, this has been one of Hollywood's greatest tragedies and biggest mysteries since 
this happened in um, November of uh, 1981. And that is despite the fact that the case was basically closed about two weeks after she did die and was ruled an accidental drowning. The moment her body was found floating in the waters off of Catalina Island, rumors and questions uh, immediately swirled regarding her death in Hollywood. Mainly uh, the questions were what had brought Wood, who had like a legendary fear of deep, dark water throughout her whole life. And it was like known about. It wasn't like something only her closest friends know. She talked about it in interviews and uh, I'm going to get to some other incidents later. Why did she leave her yacht in the middle of the night? It was a cold, kind of stormy, like bad weather night and it was pitch black. So why would she go down in the middle of the night to this dinghy? Regardless of how she died, like why, what, what brought her down there has sort of always been the biggest question. A few weeks before she did die, in fact, she did say in an interview with a journalist, I'm afraid of water that is dark. And I kind of get that because I am also afraid when I can't see the bottom. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's I'm not a water person in general. I'm not a water person either, but I especially won't go in like deep water where I can't feel the bottom, like in a lake or... Uh, the the ocean like I won't jump off jump off a boat in right. the middle of the ocean that's just not gonna happen so when I die that way please know someone pushed me <laughs> in 2012 headlines were made when the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office reopened the investigation and they actually changed the cause of death from accidental drowning to drowning and other undetermined factors. Officials cited the reason for this was the presence of bruises on Wood's body became more suspect to them over time. Right. So the Star's 1981 drowning has actually returned to the headlines this month. At the beginning of the month, a spokesperson for the Los Angeles Sheriff confirmed that new witnesses had come forward since the case was reopened in 2012, or 2011, sorry, and provided investigators with a different story about what happened during her final hours. Uh, the witnesses' accounts actually prompted the uh, Los Angeles coroner officials to deem the actor's death now suspicious, and more shockingly, they named her 87-year-old former husband, Robert Wagner, as a person of interest. So this is going to be a two-part episode because there is way too much fucking information that I gathered yeah. to get get through in one episode. Um, so I'm going to start now basically giving some history about Uh, Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner's relationship, as well as the official version of what happened. So kind of like I want to end up at the end of this episode with what we knew after it immediately happened, because all of the other information is from 2011 on, uh, and that's going to be episode two. So let's start. Uh, Natalie Wood was born Natalia Zakharenko in San Francisco to Russian and Ukrainian immigrant parents. They eventually changed their uh, family name to Gurdon. Natalie's mom had uh, always had dreams of stardom for herself. She wanted to be a ballet dancer or an actress, and she kind of put those dreams onto her daughter. Surprise, surprise. I mean, that's a pretty common... (laughs) She was a stage (laughs) mom. She was a stage mom, a momager, whatever you want to call it. Chris Jenner. Right. It's kind of been said that her only professional training as a kid before she went into Hollywood was watching Hollywood child stars from her mom's lap in a movie theater. And Wood herself recalled uh, this memory, which is a quote. My mother used to tell me that the cameraman who pointed his lens out at the audience at the end of the Paramount newsreel was taking my picture. I'd pose and smile like he was going to make me famous or something. I believed everything my mother told me. That is kind of like a hilariously demented thing to do to your kid. Right. <laughs> right. Like, right. I mean, it kind of reminds me of 
Don Davenport, like where you're just modeling and posing. I love those like flash the, bulbs. Yeah, the imaginary cameras are coming, you know, to get you. Or Norma Desmond, you know. Totally. I'm ready for my close-up. So her mom did eventually move the whole family down to Los Angeles to pursue these dreams. Uh, she, her sister was born at that time in Santa Monica, born Svetlana Gurdon. About the time they moved, a studio executive at RKO Radio Pictures changed her name to Natalie Wood. I just want to make a little point because I'm going to mention her later on. Natalie's sister also ended up pursuing acting at some point, and she actually took on the same surname, Wood, and changed her first name to Lana. So Lana Wood will be mentioned later on and as her sister. Natalie's and sister. And that's Svetlana Gurdon. <clears throat> uh, she kind of, her first role was actually in a movie with Natalie called The Searchers. Her other claim to fame as an actress, and I just had to bring this up, was that she was a Bond girl, Plenty O'Toole. <laughs> Sorry. Great name. <laughs> Very good name. And that was in Diamonds Are Forever. So Natalie pretty much started working right away when they moved to Los Angeles. Um, when she was seven, she got her first big part opposite Claudette Colbert and Orson Welles in a movie called Tomorrow Is Forever. Welles later said that Wood was born a born professional, so good she was terrifying. After that movie, she landed her first major starring role in Miracle on, the, on 34th Street in 1947. I mean, obviously, we all know this movie because it's a Christmas classic and right. it's on pretty much every year. It was remade, right? With At some Mara point Wilson. with Mara Wilson in the 90s. Was it the 90s? Yeah. It was, yeah. That pretty much made Natalie one of the most beloved child stars of all time. It was a huge hit movie. She was a, a skeptic, a kid skeptic in the movie. Right. And she was just. She didn't believe in Santa Claus. Right. So it's a great movie and it's a great. Uh, character like I love that type of kid character where they're kind of right. in control <laughs> sort of <laughs> dour um, after that she played the daughter in several family films uh, one of them was the movie called The Star with Betty Davis and that's like a great movie because it's like a Hollywood about Hollywood and I just always love those type of movies yeah. that are sort of about the Hollywood system and all that kind of stuff she appeared in over 20 films as a child and like I said before, she was a huge star. She was named the most exciting juvenile motion picture star of the year by Parents uh, Magazine. Uh, and then as she grew older, she never had that awkward phase that some child stars kind of go into. Uh, she sort of immediately became a successful teen actress. Uh, at the age of 16, she went in hard for the role of a juvenile delinquent in Nicholas Ray's uh, movie Rebel Without a Cause. While she was actually... Because she had such a good girl image, it, it did take some effort for her to cast uh, for him to cast her in the role. Um, while she was campaigning for the part, she actually was briefly hospitalized after a car accident that she was in with Dennis Hopper, who was 18 years old at the time. And he's actually a co-star in that movie as right. well, like a smaller role. Uh, would when she was hospitalized, they called her a juvenile delinquent, the police. <laughs> so that was like something she excitedly took to she Nicholas got this Ray. Bad girl cred. Yeah. Right. So he's Nicholas Ray at the time is 43 years old. Um, so this was an exciting news. Like, see, I am a juvenile delinquent, <laughs> right? Uh, shortly after she was cast, she did begin an affair with the director. And she's 16 and he's 43. So this is like pretty That's pretty crazy. scandalous. Yeah. Obviously, this is not an open <laughs> affair. I'm going to probably do an episode on um, Rebel Without a Cause, all the actors in that at some point. So I'm going to focus in on that more in that episode because it's not really relevant to her death. But uh, at the time, Dennis Hopper remembered that he was in big trouble with Ray because he was also fucking Natalie or at the time. Dennis Hopper was? Yeah. 
uh, and he said that Nick snitched on him to the studio and kind of saved his own ass because the studio went after Dennis like, hey, don't fuck our star. But Nick was like, he kind of like deflected to Dennis. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's carrying on with the same star. Right. And his is actually way more inappropriate than an 18 oh, and a 16 yeah. year old. So as I said, uh, the movie was Rebel Without a Cause. That also co-starred James Dean and Sal Mineo. Uh, and it was a big hit. Uh, and Natalie was a big hit in it. She was actually nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for the role. Uh, uh, she, As I said before, she followed that role with a, a pretty crucial role in John Ford's The Searcher, the one her sister sort of got her debut on. And in 1956, she also graduated from Van Nuys High School. God, now imagine was, before you even graduate high school, you're nominated for an Academy Award. Right. And you're like in a classic classic movies like a few right. classic mu- movies already. and you're fucking your director yeah <laughs> what uh it was during her senior year in high school actually on her 18th birthday that she went on a studio arranged date with 26 year old robert wagner now at the time robert wagner was an aspiring actor at 20th century fox and he he came from money his father was uh, a steel executive and he grew up in in like a house that was right next to the Bel Air Country Club. And he actually caddied for several stars, including Clark Gable and Fred Astaire. So he kind of grew up around money. He wasn't like Natalie Wood who came from a you know poor upbringing. I mean, she got rich pretty fast, but <laughs> her family was not wealthy. Um, his first break actually came in 1952. He had a small role in Walter Lang's With a Song in My Heart in the movie Susan Hayward, uh, sings to Wagner, who's like in tears, uh, and the tears are running down his face. And this was like fucking catnip to teen girls everywhere to see this tough guy he's, soldier like he's crying. So sensitive. He's so sensitive. So he became kind of like a mild teen heartthrob at that point. I gotta Be- look him up because of that role. He got he got a big role uh, playing Prince Valiant in a page boy wig. And I was just going to mention, uh, did he have the page boy haircut? Right. He had the page boy haircut and the whole freaking look, including stock, like, like rubber calves that like filled out his stockings. Like, so they made him really. Are you serious? Yeah. Uh, it was like a pretty big epic movie, but it was like completely ruined him from being considered a serious actor. Um, he, Robert Wagner was hot in the 50s. Right. So he, at the time he said, you know, method actors were sort of becoming in vogue and they just mocked him mercilessly for this role. In fact, this like funny, (laughs) the getup he wore and it was so ridiculous that Dean Martin actually saw him on the studio lot at some point in it and he thought it was Jane Wyman. Oh, sorry. Oh my God. That's just some old school Hollywood dunking. I was just going to say, can you imagine getting dunked by someone in the Rat Pack? Like, that's just the most brutal. I bet they had the most brutal I mean, she did have that wig, like that hair, remember? Like the really short bangs and kind of the Dorothy Hamill-ish thing going on. Dude, I just looked up a picture of Robert Wagner dressed like Prince Valiant and he's like on set. Please show me. Oh my God, the hair. It he's, is a Jane Wyman hair. He looks fucking <laughs> yeah, we'll terrible. Post a picture like, of I it. would dunk on him we if I saw to. him. Okay, we'll post this. So um, 
this is an article, a quote from Robert Wagner, who was talking about their early days, their early romance. Um, I saw Natalie around town, but she never seemed interested. She was making Rebel Without a Cause and hanging out with James Dean. I was with an older crowd. The first time I remember really talking to her was at a fashion show in 1956. She was beautiful, but she gave no hint about the mad crush she had on me. I later found out she had signed with my agent simply because he was my agent. A month later, I invited Natalie to a premiere on what turned out to be her 18th birthday. At dinner, we both sensed things were different. I sent her flowers and the dates continued. I remember the instant I fell in love with her. One night on board a small boat I owned, she looked at me with love, her dark brown eyes lit by a table lantern. That moment changed my life. Oh boy. Ooh. Uh, He had it bad. He did. So in addition to Rebel Without a Cause and Searchers, Teen Natalie also made a movie called Marjorie Morningstar, which was a big starring uh, role. And she really began to show that she was uh, a good actress. I think up until that point, and because she was a teen, it's like hard to tell if a child actor can be very good and not really transition into an adult star. But she, you know, she was actually proving herself as an actress. She also never, like I said, had that awkward phase. She grew into like a really beautiful movie star looking Oh my woman. God, she was stunning. Right. So uh, on that road to success, she did have this brief stumble in a movie called All the Fine Young Cannibals, which is where the band got their name. And I have no idea why they would take their name <laughs> from a movie that was not a big hit. And even like not a hit after the fact, like a, you like know, a camp cult. classic or a cult cult movie. And Desi and I were actually talking about Fine Young Cannibals um, kind of recently. And I uh, we got into an argument because I said that I thought She Drives Me Crazy was an all-time classic. Desi was like... Oh. I think it's fine. She thinks it's fine. And I'm like, when I hear that song come on, which is rare because like who plays that song? Right. You'd have to hear it like at Vaughn's or something. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, everyone <laughs> shut the fuck up. She drives me crazy. Just came on. I think it's a fine song, but like you said, I, it's nothing I would ever play. Oh, I play it. It's right. on so many of my playlists. Whatever. Okay. Wow. Whatever. I have a very strong opinion about that okay. song. Who knew? I, do you think anybody <laughs> had a strong opinion about any Fine Young Cannibal songs? <laughs> Rachel does. Here's she's a, she's a she's just a surprise. A here's minute. why. It's because my mother, Rachel song corner. <laughs> my mother had the cassette tape when it came okay. out, so she played it all the time. Right. And it reminds me. So it has me, a sentimental. It has a sentimental. Right. Okay. Okay. Jesus. I don't think it's a bad song. The only other interesting thing about this movie is that it was loosely based on the life of uh, Ch- Chet Banker, uh, trumpet player Ch- Chet Banker, okay. which I have no idea. Uh, whatever. That was the first film Wagner and Wood actually also made together as husband and wife. So there's that. Now, like I said, that movie was a hit. So there was this period now where people were like, is she going to be a star? <laughs> like, I mean, that's what Hollywood is. It's like, it's so back and forth, especially right. during those days. It's like, you're only as good as your last picture. I mean, I feel like your that's a line, picture. right? <laughs> that's how someone, I really talk. <laughs> someone someone had to have said that has to be a quote. Come on, I feel like that has to be a quote from some stupid movie. Okay. You're only as good as your last picture. See? <laughs> yeah. That's how I really talk. I'm a 40s gangster mole. <laughs> Um, okay. So, but like many actresses, uh, Natalie did want to be taken seriously for her talent. She didn't want to just be a movie star. And that period, like I've mentioned before, was the big method acting where people like Marilyn Monroe were taking act- at the actor studio. And Marlon Brando. Yeah. I mean, so she was no different. <clears throat> a real turning point for Natalie 
was when she saw the film A Streetcar Named Desire, and she was transformed by that movie. Uh, she became obsessed with the director of the movie, Elliot Kazan, who was, you know, all into that method acting, and he was just like, whatever. He was like ground zero for that. And she was also enamored with Vivian Lee's performance in the movie, and she really became sort of a role model for Natalie. Uh, she was, you know, going up for the role in Kazan's next picture, which was called Splendor in the Grass. And that was going to be starring, uh, her co-star in that movie would be Warren Beatty. And I'm pretty sure this is his first role. So he, uh, Kazan actually wrote in his 1997 memoir, that the sages of the film community had declared her a washed-up actress already at this point, which Are is insane. Are you serious? Yeah. What is she, like 20? <clears throat> but he still wanted to interview for her, for her for the film. So I feel like there was a little bit of, like, I saved her career in this. Right. I mean, he had a sort of history of whitewashing his life and career, obviously, for numerous reasons, including uh, naming names during the McCarthy era. <laughs> Wait, Warren Beatty did? No, Kazan. Oh, Kazan. Oh, right, okay. Right, right. I was like, don't make me not lo- love no, Warren no. Beatty. So this is his take on her when he's uh, sort of interviewing her to see if he'll let her be uh, the lead in his movie. When I saw her, I detected behind the well-mannered young wife front... Uh, oh, because she had married... Um, Robert Wagner at this point. I can't remember if I said that. Yeah. Okay. I think so. They did get married a year after their first date. So she was 19. Um, I talked with her more quietly then and more personally. I wanted to find out what human material was there, what her inner life was. Then she told me she was being psychoanalyzed. That did it. Poor RJ, I said to myself. I like Bob Wagner. I still do. RJ is Robert Wagner, by the way. Sometimes people will call him that. What is his middle name? (laughs) Jay. What the fuck is the J there for? Jamiroquai? I don't know. <laughs> Jamiroquai also have very strong feelings about love right. Jamiroquai. See, I don't get Jamiroquai. Why? I thought that that was a joke. No. Like, I don't think, I thought no one likes Jamiroquai. He's You're like tripping. <laughs> Brendan, do you like Jamiroquai? I think he left. Okay. He left because he didn't want to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel has some sentimental attachments to 90 music that I do not have. Finding clearly. Cannibals was technically 1989. It was? Yes. I'm great okay. with dates. Okay. That's right. That's her thing. <laughs> do you want to ask me when Virtual Insanity came out? Uh, sure. 1997. Okay. I was going to say 97, yeah. but that was just purely, I guess. I love that song. <clears throat> um, right. Okay. Okay. Sidebar. So, sorry. Uh, so in the movie, I don't know if you know what the movie is about. It's basically about Warren Beatty and he's like the hunky football hero that everyone is like into, like the hot guy at school. Uh, Natalie Wood is madly in love with him, but she won't put out. So he goes with a looser girl. Uh, she fucking loses it (laughs) and she has a mental breakdown and is institutionalized. So the whole movie is basically about her having a nervous breakdown that Warren Beatty dumps her. Uh, there's like a lot of crazy scenes in it. It's yeah. a great movie. Um, during this movie, she's having this major breakthrough as an actress, but her marriage is falling apart. Uh, according to sister Lana Wood, I do not know which came first, the end of her marriage or Warren Beatty. <laughs> so at the time of filming the movie, Beatty was actually living with Joan Collins, which I find super That's hot because so I fucking love Joan awesome. Collins. 
at some point during filming, because this is like a love story between these two and, and it's like a passionate love story. Right. I mean, this is basically literally like a 16 year old girl's first fucking love. When you remember that, it's just like this desperate fucking love. Oh my God. You think you're going to die. You're going to fucking die without them. So it's a really great depiction of that. At some point during the filming, the sort of on-screen kissing that was pretty passionate sort of caught fire and sort of led to stuff off screen. Which has happened plenty of times before. Kazan, at some point in one of, I think he wrote several memoirs, he wrote that it was clear to Natalie that Warren was bound for the top. This perception was an aphrodisiac. So I feel like she thought, oh, he's a star on the rise. Yeah. You know, like that's hot. And I think that made even more jealousy with Robert Wagner because he's older and never quite caught on right. in, a, in a major way like Warren Beatty was about to. Um, now, one day Wagner did arrive on the set and he saw that Beatty's arm was wrapped around her waist while they were waiting for lights to be set up for their next scene. Beatty, they kind of got into a, a fight. Beatty accused Wagner of sort of keeping tabs on them and coming to check in on them. I mean, I love that, that it's kind of like, well, why were you looking at my phone? <laughs> it's like the, it's like the pre right. phone era. Like, sure. I was fucking your wife, but why were you checking on this like, kind of thing? Uh, Wagner was really embarrassed and like by this confrontation by Warren, who was sort of shameless, I guess, in a way. And this is on set. He got really, uh, embarrassed and kind of was controlling his rage. Kazan noticed that he was sort of acting this way, but he, he felt like the affair between the two actors were helping the movie. So he did, he did absolutely (laughs) nothing to stop it and only kind of encouraged them to do it. Uh, he said later that he did regret it because it did cause Robert Wagner a lot of pain. Like yeah. the fact that everyone was sort of complicit in keeping this thing secret or letting it happen. Uh, what made it worse for him, according to Kazan, was that this sexual humiliation was pretty public. Right. So everyone on set knew what was happening. He um, felt like a cuck. Exactly. He's an original cuck. <laughs> Wagner eventually left Wood and went to stay on his boat in Newport Beach. Uh, They separated and divorced finally in 1963. And this divorce sort of shocked Hollywood. I found this tidbit to be kind of interesting because it's like such a, it's like obviously Elizabeth Taylor has to come into this somehow. Because it's like, the drama's not on me. How can I make this about me? (laughs) She apparently became so upset about the divorce that she had to be, she had to take to her bed in like a depression that's like when someone dies, yeah. like a celebrity dies, and someone on Twitter is like, let me tell you how much this person right. who I don't know. According to, or, or like, according to some, I can't remember where I read this, Wood actually said, why does she need sedating? It's my marriage that just collapsed. I just literally love that that Elizabeth Taylor somehow managed to be, it's like, no, divorce is my thing. <laughs> I need this. You're not the divorced one. Like, cause they're both child stars. So right. there was probably like some kind of competition between them. Anyways. Um, anyways, Kathy. <laughs> uh, and we love Elizabeth Taylor. On oh, Hollywood. I love Elizabeth we Taylor. But I mean, part of the love is that she is this dramatic. She's so extra. I love her. Um, so peace. now, during the filming of Splendor and Grass, Splendor in the Grass, like as I mentioned before, Natalie Wood had a lifelong fear of the water. And I'm gonna run through a few incidents that happened through her lifetime that kind of instigated this fear. Uh, there was one during Splendor in the Grass. It's not the first one. I'm gonna start with it though. At some point, 
Kazan did find out about her fear, okay? And he uh, had a scene that he was going to be shooting in a reservoir, you know, a water reservoir. And what, as that, opposed to a cum reservoir? Yeah, I don't know why I specified <laughs> that. You never know with Rachel. <laughs> yeah, you know the tip, the reservoir yeah, that's tip? that's why they call it a reservoir. Uh, Rachel, come on. This is serious. Uh, she confided to him that she did have this deep-seated terror of water, particularly dark water, and of being helpless within it. Like I said, Kazan was method actor into the method acting. And he was like, perfect. (laughs) She had asked to be in a small studio tank to film the scene, but he refused because he said it would be obvious. Like, you know, he, the reservoir was shallow. Her feet would touch the bottom. It would be fine. She was still really nervous about it, but she did the scene and she did it well because she was fucking petrified. But once she finished the scene and was on dry land, she was shivering with fear and kind of laughing hysterically with relief. Like that's how traumatizing filming that scene was for her. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Now, as I mentioned before, there's a few other times I'm just going to bring up right here. When she was 11 in 1949 on the set of a movie called The Green Promise, she was supposed to cross a bridge that had been rigged to collapse as she reached the other side. Something happened. Someone pulled the lever before she was completely across and she fell into the water below. According to her, she said, I don't even remember them fishing me out. So this is as a child. That's She's traumatizing. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, Another incident happened in the movie I mentioned earlier, The Star with Betty Davis in 1952. This actually happened off of Catalina in a freezing uh, January morning. The director wanted Wood to leap over the railing of actor Sterling Hayden's private yacht in a scene. He told her to just jump. There there uh, There will be men in rowboats below to pick you up. When she hit the water, she immediately panicked and began screaming. Davis was so traumatized by Natalie's 
trauma that she said that she would quit the movie if they forced Natalie to do the scene again. They actually reshot it with a body double and that stand-in actually became entangled in kelp and nearly drowned. Jesus. Uh, Natalie has said after that, after all of that, they cut the scene from the movie. <laughs> so, I mean, that's like a classic, whatever. And then there was one more incident after Splendor in the Grass four years after. While filming a scene in Santa Monica Bay for a movie called Inside Daisy Clover, a giant wave sort of came up separating the small boat that contained Wood and Robert Redford from the crew and technicians. Uh, the director, Robert Mulligan, said at the time, there was no way we could get Natalie and Bob off the boat, and the lines to keep them in place were breaking right and left. Redford actually thought the whole thing was like, whatever. This was fun. Like, <laughs> hell, we were in a, like, this random rogue boat. Uh, but Wood obviously was terrified. So yeah. those are like a few incidents throughout her life that sort of established water. this water and this fear of water. Splendor in the Grass revitalized her career that was constantly back and forth at this point in a way for her performance in the movie she received um academy award nomination a golden globe nomination and a bafta award for best actress in a leading role um as i said before her marriage pretty much ended though they separated in june of 1970 uh 1961 and divorced in april of 1962 now her, her career was really on a roll. Uh, in 1961, she played Maria in um, the musical West Side Story, which was obviously a huge box office and critical success. In 19, 1962, she was in Gypsy, another musical. She uh, received her third Academy Award nomination for Love with a Proper Stranger in 1964, and that made her the second actress to net three Oscar nominations by the age of 25. Uh, the other one is Teresa Wright. That's amazing. That is amazing. Um, I think her movies started getting more box office success. And although she did get the nomination, I, like I said, in 1964, she kind of still wasn't really considered a great actress. And sometimes she would Even give... Even though she had nominations, three nominations? she would still give bung performances. Like, like Gypsy, I love Gypsy, but she's sort of miscast in that, yeah. in a way. In 1966, she was actually given the Harvard uh, Lampoon Worst Actress of the Year Award. She was the first performer in the award's history to accept it in person, and the Harvard Crimson wrote about her that she was quite a good sport. So I feel like whatever I've read about Natalie Wood, and I knew some stuff going into it, she does seem kind of like kind of like Elizabeth Taylor, like real down-to-earth in a weird movie star way. Like kind of kind of in on the joke. She she's in on the joke, and I think she, like, parties and drinks, and, like, even though she has this image, there's, right. like, this sort of... I mean, Elizabeth Taylor had that kind of body sort totally. of side to her. Yeah, and I feel like Natalie Wood has a bit of that, too, because she did not want to be separated from her analyst. That uh, is such a 60s, 50s right. thing, way to call a therapist is an analyst. yes. Also, the the absolute devotion where you had to <laughs> rely on them in such a codependent kind of way. Like, right. that seems against what therapy should be, <laughs> to be that codependent for your therapist. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> she took a sort of three-year break from acting and returned in the comedy uh, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. That was also a hit. In May of 1969, Wood married British producer Richard Gregson, uh, they had dated for a few weir years before they got married while he was waiting for his divorce to be finalized. In 1970, they had daughter Natasha, uh, and she, she she became an actress. 
actually, she was kind of working a lot in the 90s, right? Natasha Gregson Wagner. Uh, I don't remember. Rachel doesn't remember. Sorry. See? She was too busy listening to (laughs) Jamiroquai. Never going to be able to live this down. She actually looks exactly like her mom. Her name is Natasha Gregson Wagner. yeah. So that marriage didn't last. In August of 1971, they separated after Wood overheard an inappropriate conversation between her secretary and her husband. That is hot. She filed for divorce, which was uh, divorce, which was finalized in April of '72, and she resumed her relationship with um, Robert Wagner, who also had like a marriage and child in this period. Uh, they actually chose the 1970 Academy, 1972 Academy Award ceremony to kind of reemerge as a as a couple. Yeah, uh, and people were thrilled when they stepped out of the limousine. It actually caused like pandemonium. Like that's what a big deal it was. I mean, it is really crazy to get back together. I feel like that's something that could never happen nowadays because we just know every detail. Right. So they somehow managed to surprise everybody. Well done. <laughs> uh, according to Lana Wood, it was the reunion the whole world felt sentimental about. The couple remarried on July 16th, 1972, and their daughter, Courtney Wagner, was born in 1974. Lana Wood also states about their marriage at this period. Her marriage was considered to be one of the best in Hollywood, and there was no question she was a devoted, loving, even adoring mother and stepmother. She and RJ had begun with love and built from there. They had overcome each other's problems and had reached an accommodation with time and the changes time brings. As with anybody else who has settled into making a long marriage work, they were far more determined than most people to make it happen. I guess their point is, they were young the first time. Now they're gonna. Now we're serious. Now we're serious, about this. and we've seen, we've had, we've been married to other people. We were, <laughs> we've had several years of Tinder misfires. Now we're right. serious. Yeah, we don't want to date anymore. <laughs> it's rough. We're out over there. Tinder. It's rough out there. Let's get back together. Um, in 1975, Wagner and Wood, um, actually bought a boat called the challenger and although it's considered bad luck to change the name of I a was boat, gonna, thought you were going to say it's considered bad luck to name vehicles the challenger yeah because that hadn't happened yet you yeah. mean like the space shuttle i'm just saying it's right. still eerie yeah <laughs> sorry well yeah they renamed the boat the splendor uh splendor door like splendor in, splendor the, grass. in the grass now here's like a crazy detail i'm gonna bring this up because it makes absolutely no sense to me Supposedly, they did this after a line in Wordsworth owed um, intimations of immortality, which is a poem Wood loved and one she read as Deanie in Splendor in the Grass. But she always insisted that the name wasn't a reference to the film because she wanted to distance herself from the infidelity yeah. and all the bad stuff that happened in the film. But it's like, don't name the fucking boat Splendor. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's a. <sighs> That's insane to me. That's weird. Like, I get why you wouldn't want to do that, but don't name the boat Splendor because we all know what you're fucking talking about. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I'm sorry, Natalie. I got to gotta disagree with you on that one. <laughs> she only acted in four more theatrical films during the remainder of her life. Uh, one of them was called The Last Married Couple, and I'm going to bring it up because it's considered that she broke ground in this movie. As an actress, she used the F word. I'm sorry. Wait, what year was this? Uh, in the seventies. Well, they were already saying the F word in movies by the. But 70s. I guess her, like her reputation, like to see an actress of her caliber to say that, I don't know. And of that era where she. Right. Look, I I have no idea to investigate this point, but it just struck me as hilarious. If any of our listeners uh know 
and could tell me what the first usage in film, like mainstream film, mainstream, mainstream. Don't give me some Don't be fucking like, Czech film. Yeah, that I've Desperate never heard Living. Of. Well, yeah, <laughs> like some John Waters movie, right? Um, as Natalie's career uh, kind of slowed down, Robert started taking off again, but on TV. Uh, he actually encouraged Natalie to do TV and she did a ton of TV in the seventies, which I think was pretty rare at that point for a movie star to kind of start doing a ton of TV, especially considering her age. This is like in the seventies, she was in her thirties still. Like that's how long she was famous that you feel like she should have been older. She wasn't. Now Robert's sort of big TV success was a show called heart to heart, which I actually remember seeing as a kid and I will tell you why it stuck out to me I don't know if I watched it in reruns or what um, because I don't know how long it was on TV but the lead actress in that is named um, Stephanie Powers and she had red hair and pale skin and freckles and I like was desperate I hated my red hair and freckles and my mom would be like see you you can be beautiful too the nicest my mom was to me like one day you won't be ugly you could you could be a beautiful actress <laughs> just because you have red hair and freckles and pale skin doesn't mean you're gonna be a you know nightmare when you grow up look <laughs> look that she, could happen it's like the ugly duckling okay thanks mom <laughs> so now robert was the sort of uh he had the rumors of an onset affair um he as I said, Stephanie Powers was like an attractive woman and they had a lot of chemistry on this show. They were a married couple. I remember from the opening credits, one of the lines that their um, sort of houseman or something says is she's gorgeous. And my mom also agreed, apparently. <laughs> uh, in fact, Nat- Natasha and Courtney visited him on the set of Heart to Heart at some point and thought their love scene was so convincing that they started crying because they thought their dad <laughs> was going to leave their Whoa. mom. Right. Uh, and he said to them, apparently, this is just the way daddy makes a living. Okay. <laughs> so Natalie, uh, at this point, was cast in a film, a science fiction film called Brainstorm, which was directed by Douglas Trumbull. That film starred Christopher Walken, who was fresh off an Oscar win for um, The Deer Hunter, which he won two years before that. Uh and according to people on that set, Wood was infatuated with Walken. So they're both kind of, ha- something's going on on both of their sets. Um, during the filming, she was openly flirting with him. Uh, the rumors were so intense, in fact, that while they were filming in North Carolina, RJ went to the set to visit, like once again, right? He had a few days off from Heart to Heart. He went to visit. Lana Wood said in her book that she wrote about Natalie in 1984, I don't know if Natalie's love affair with Chris was imaginary or real. My strong suspicion is that it was all in her mind and that perhaps she was only wishing it to be so. So uh, no one really knows if anything happened, but there was obviously some kind of chemistry. Yeah. Um, Walken's wife, Georgianne, was also sort of always around too. So obviously both spouses kind of felt like something was going on. Whatever was happening, and this is like a baller fucking move on Natalie's part, she invited Christopher Walken to join her and her husband on Splendor over the 1981 Thanksgiving weekend, along with Captain Dennis Davern, who had worked for the couple for some time. Uh, that's a baller move. I, I was just going to say, <clears throat> that's pretty bold. To invite your, like, at the very least, she was smitten with this man 
and to invite and her husband was suspicious something was happening and she must have known i feel like this is like fuck you i'm gonna invite like to me this is a baller move like it's also kind of weird to like not bring his wife like i don't know why the wife wasn't there maybe she wanted them both at the same time who the hell knows Ooh, Rachel. Rachel's got her own theory. She's got to call the L.A. police. I'm just saying, like, you know, it, it could happen. Okay, and I think I mentioned earlier, like at the top of the episode, this is late November, and it was like a gray, kind of drizzly weather. This was not like sunny, necessarily sunny weather. It was sort of like a drizzly thing when they left to go to Catalina Island. And they were going to have Thanksgiving dinner on Catalina. I don't think they're going to have Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Rachel's all like, like Rachel's all like food? sentimental and family. Like, what about Thanksgiving dinner? <laughs> they don't fucking care about Thanksgiving dinner. I want to know if they're going to eat or no, not. No, they're not. They're going to eat, but not Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Sorry, Rachel. This is like, Rachel's deeply disappointed right I now. Think with my tummy I sometimes. literally love that that was your concern. <laughs> well, are they going to eat Thanksgiving dinner on Catalina? <laughs> Rachel, make a reservation? I, need, I need Rachel's investigation service. <laughs> <laughs> the most suspicious aspect of it all no thanksgiving dinner what were they thinking that is suspicious to me uh-huh okay as i mentioned also before i'm going to kind of go through the official version of what happened okay. in this episode a lot of this what i'm i'm going to take this from is um a 1983 book coroner by thomas t noguchi now you may recognize his name i didn't write that i just came up with that. He was LA's famed former chief medical examiner for LA County. Yeah. He was in that position from 1967 to 1982. And he performed numerous famous autopsies, uh, uh, including Marilyn Monroe, Robert F. Kennedy, Sharon Tate, William Holden, Natalie Wood, and John Belushi. Wow. Uh, So he was, uh, he was in there. Um, So here's sort of his version from the book coroner, like give and take. And I, I I got some from other articles too. Um, so on Saturday night, which was November 28th, about 5 PM, Natalie Wood, Robert Wagner and Christopher Walken all went ashore to have dinner, not Thanksgiving dinner. (laughs) This is Saturday night also. Right. So it is Thanksgiving weekend. So maybe they had dinner and then went on the trip. I didn't think about that. Is that now you're happy, right? I just, yeah. Uh, so they were drinking a lot at a restaurant called Doug's Harbor Reef. At 7 p.m., their party was sat for dinner, and the drinking continued. Don Whiting, who was the manager of the restaurant at the time, actually became worried. That's how intoxicated they were getting at dinner. And they had to go back to their boat. Like, they weren't staying on the island yeah. all night. So... uh when they actually left the restaurant about 10.30 p.m., he called Harbor Patrol and asked uh, the guy who was working Harbor Patrol to make sure that the group reached their yacht safely in the dinghy. A man named Paul Miller, who was also yachting in the area, was on his boat called Easy Rider, and he at some point said he and his wife couldn't sleep that night because there was a party raging on shore that had really loud music blaring, like, through speakers. Um... He actually went to sleep at some point and then woke up. The music was still blaring. And that was when he uh, went on to the radio microphone to call the harbor patrol and inform them about the party and kind of get them to, like, quiet the party down or whatever. When he got onto the radio at 1.15 a.m., 
he actually heard a different voice. It wasn't Harbor Patrol. It was Robert Wagner. <clears throat> he didn't recognize the voice at first, but uh, he, he described Wagner's tone as quizzical, and he said, Easy Rider, are you cruising in the vicinity? That was the name of the boat, by the way, again. No, this is Splendor. We think we may have someone missing in an 11-foot rubber dinghy. Now, Don Whiting, the manager of the restaurant that I mentioned before, also happened to overhear this conversation on this. I guess it was like a radio where everyone can overhear whatever on the channel. Uh, he radioed another friend um, to go to the Wagner yacht at once and report back to him about the situation. 30 minutes later, light beams from the Harbor Patrol boats, private boats of the Baywatch and Coast Guard helicopters began to crisscross the ocean. The beams illuminated um, on the water and the waves, swept over yachts, sailing ships, and, and rocking swells, but nothing was seen. Like They just pretty much sweep the whole area looking for things. At 7.30 a.m. the following morning, a sheriff's helicopter was heading towards Catalina to help aid in the search when one of the crew members detected a spot of red in the ocean waves below go down he shouted to the pilot the helicopter descended down to the sea um the the water was kind of churning below them you know like like in a movie where the helicopter goes down and the water just starts yeah. like you know kind of riled, getting riled up face down in a red jacket they saw natalie wood floating her hair splayed out in the water the location of her body was about one mile south of the yacht on an isolated cove known as Blue Cavern Point. The missing dinghy was discovered on the shore a little further south of where she was. The key was in the ignition of the boat, and it was in the off position. The gear was in neutral, and the oars were tied down. So she was never in the dinghy, like, based on that sort of yeah. uh, situation. Police were surprised by that, and even more surprising to them was that what Natalie uh, was wearing. She was clad in a nightgown, knee-length wool socks, and a down-filled jacket. She wasn't really dressed for a boat ride, in their opinion. Um, they believed, like, their first sort of guess was that she untied the line which the dinghy had held the dinghy to the yacht, and while she was untying it, somehow uh, she fell in the water. But the sort of initial question was, well, why did she go to the dinghy to begin with like that right. was sort of they you know they kind of like guessed a bit to that but they couldn't figure out why she went down there to begin with that was when Thomas Noguchi was brought onto the case now at the time he was sort of under fire for his handling of the death of actor William Holden who actually was married or in a relationship with Stephanie Powers oh the co-star on Heart to Heart you know who William Holden is. I mean, he's like a yeah. huge actor. He was His big role was maybe Sunset Boulevard, but he was in a ton of other things. Uh, two weeks before Natalie died, he had emptied a bottle of vodka, you know, drank it in his Santa Monica apartment, tripped, gashed his forehead on a bedside table, and bled to death, according to Noguchi's autopsy and report. He was basically too drunk to fucking call 911. Right. And he... Uh, bled out of his wound. Um, the Hollywood community was fucking pissed that Noguchi had revealed Holden was drunk to the press. I don't even oh. know if that's like, he, he has the right to do that or what? Like, I don't really know the legal aspect of that. Well, nowadays, but they kind of felt like he had invaded his privacy and that didn't need to be yeah. known. Whatever. Maybe the Hollywood community was still more insular at that time. 
So he's coming off of that experience. So obviously now he's entering this other thing, maybe with a little bit more caution this time. Um, so according to him, he dispatched an investigator named Pamela Eaker to the scene and she interrogated Robert Wagner. And his story to her was, um, after they returned from the restaurant that night, he and Walken went into the ward room of the yacht for a nightcap and Natalie retired to her quarters. The last time he remembered seeing Natalie was about quarter of 11. Sometime after midnight, Wagner went to their cabin and noticed that she wasn't in bed. When he searched for her around the yacht, he, squ- he discovered that the dinghy was also me- missing. Even at that point, he wasn't concerned at first because he, she often <laughs> took the boat out alone. What? Right. Uh, to do what? I, I mean, she has, she would use it to go to shore, but at that time of night, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then as time passed and she didn't reappear, he became more upset. And that was when he finally radio radioed for help. Now, if you remember, I think I told you he radioed for help about one fifteen AM. So he waited an hour before, like after finding her missing until radioing, radioing for help, he waited about an hour. Yeah. Um, now, that was kind of the story that all three of them on board, sort of the party line, almost too suspiciously, all said the same thing. Right? Robert Wagner, Christopher Walken, Walken, and the captain. Right. Um, at that point, Wagner, Iker asked Wagner if she thought he thought it was possible she had taken her whole life, and he said she had never been suicidal. Um, Pamela also gave an initial report on Natalie's body. This is not an autopsy, but just her like sort of initial findings. She said uh, her body had been taken from the ocean and placed in a hyperbaric chamber for safekeeping. Upon arrival, she observed um, that she was lying in Stokes' litter. I don't know what that means. Descendant is wrapped in plastic sheet. She herself is dressed in flannel nightgown and socks. The jacket she was wearing when found floating is no longer on the body, having come off when she was pulled from the water. At time, decedent was pulled from the water. Sheriff's personnel said that the body was absent of any rigor, and they noted foam coming from her mouth. Descendant still, uh, decedent still has foam coming from her mouth. Rigor is now present throughout her entire body. Decedent has numerous bruises to legs and arms. Her eyes are also a bit cloudy appearing. No other trauma noted in foul play is not suspected at this time. Police also didn't suspect foul play initially in Natalie's um, death, but by nightfall um, in Hollywood, rumors were swirling. Right, um, And like some of the questions you know, most people have were, wasn't it strange two men on the yacht didn't even know that she had left the boat? Hadn't she spoken to them? Why did she slip out in the stern of the yacht in the middle of the night, climb down a ladder, untie a dinghy? Like, what was she doing? Where was she going? And why was she going somewhere? Um, Adding fuel to all of this was the caution of Noguchi. He wasn't saying anything because he didn't want to make... He didn't want to fuck up again. He didn't want to fuck up again so he was being like extra cautious yeah. and making a pronouncement. So that kind of, he wasn't even saying like, no, it wasn't murder because he wasn't saying anything. So that kind of let people be like, well, why isn't he saying it's not murder? Right. Uh, so Monday morning after that, the autopsy happens. And this one, he talks about the bruises that she had on her body, um, including her, her right arm above the wrist on her left arm. There was a fresh bruise about half inch in diameter. She had superficial skin bruises, um, 
all over her right and left lower legs, and those also appeared to be fresh. The left knee area showed a recent bruise measuring approximately two inches in diameter. The right ankle had a bruise about two inches in diameter, diameter, and there were bruises all along um, her back, the back of her legs as well. Were about, these postmortem? Uh, they were called fresh, so I don't really know. He doesn't specify whether they happened. But I, I'm assuming what it means within the last night. Like, they weren't from a week ago. Right, right, right. There was also an abrasion on her left cheek, which was her only head wound. Uh, there was no traumatic injuries to her skull, so that kind of eliminates the idea that she did fall and hit her head and fall in the water. Like, that yeah. was sort of a sus- uh, something that was suspect or suspected. Um, he also went back over her clothing. Um, like I mentioned, the flannel neck on the wool socks and the red down jacket were still wet uh, Monday morning. That's how much water that jacket had taken in. He picked up the jacket at some point and said it probably weighed 30 to 40 pounds in its saturated wow. state. Um, the toxicology reports came back at that point, and Natalie's blood was 0.14%, wow. which is 0.04% above intoxication standards you know, for, for drunk driving. Um, the toxicology report and the bruises were able to determine the probable cause of death. The vertical abrasion on her cheek told him that Natalie Wood was possibly attempting to board the dinghy, had fallen into the ocean, striking her face because she had sustained no, um, head wounds. He knew that she was conscious while she was in the water. Um, and the bruises on her lower legs, he thought at the time, um, happened when she fell into the water. According to him, the saddest part was that um, the reason she drowned was the weight of the jacket, which had pulled her down when she attempted to climb back in the dinghy. If she had taken off the jacket, she might have been able to climb back into the dinghy and have um, survived. And then he speculates that the reason she didn't do that was because she was drunk. I mean, and she just wasn't thinking clearly and probably panicking. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd be fucking panicking. Oh, my God. Can you even imagine falling in the water late at night? Like, that's fucking freaky. Um, So he concluded that she drowned basically the result of the um, wet jacket. Uh, uh, She had somehow untied the dinghy and drifted away from it and from the yacht because there was a strong current at the time. And the dinghy drifted away. Right. Um, So... Like I said, the question still remained, though, why was she down there? Why was she wearing that joat? She wasn't dressed to do anything. Um, to go anywhere. Right. So he actually goes into his, in, into his, um, in his book, he goes into like a really, I'm going to kind of loosely go through what he thinks her final moments were like. And it's, it's like a bit hard to hear because it's, you can really see where her panic started setting in. This is what the, this uh, is the coroner in his okay. book coroner um so this is the book was from 1983 so two years after uh she died so as i said that she was trying to possibly step into the dinghy she might have uh was reaching to pull it closer lost her balance and fell into the cold water which closed over her head she uh, was bobbing to the surface she must have at that time not felt in any danger because she was just going to pull herself back into the uh yacht into the dinghy um but 
sort of too late, she realized that something strange was happening, that the dinghy was actually being swept out in something called like a wind funnel. Like mm-hmm. there was some kind of current that was started pulling it, her away from the yacht. And it was like before she knew it, she was 10 yards, 20 yards, 30 yards. Oh my God. So I think what happened was she thought like, oh, this is whatever. Fuck, I fell in the water. And then before she knew it, she was just getting further and further away from the yacht. Uh, so she started realizing the strength of this wind funnel. And within seconds, uh, she was too distant to swim back to the yacht. Um, he speculates that she probably called out at this point, but her cries were not heard because there was that rock music blasting oh, uh, on the shore. Right. So her like desperate calls and yells for help were probably not heard. Or if they were heard, it might have just been... Oh, that's the part. Like, I think that sometimes when I hear a house party, it's like, should I be paying attention to that? Was like, you know what I mean? Um, So she probably wasn't completely hope, but panic was setting in. Completely hopeless, but panic was setting in. Um, So she wasn't, her cries weren't being heard. No lights were, you know, turning on or anything. Um, She probably at that point was trying to climb onto the dinghy rather than thinking she would swim back to the yacht. Yeah. Uh, and then that was when she discovered that she couldn't couldn't do it. The sides of this dinghy, like if you're thinking of a boat, it's not a boat. It's one of those rubber ones where the the sides are sort of like huge cylindrical rubber tubes. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Like it's almost like a blow up something. So we're not talking about like a hardwood boat where you could really get a grasp. It's like this rubber cylindrical dinghy that's probably really fucking hard to get a grip on. So in the best of circumstances, it would have been hard for her to hoist herself up onto that dinghy. Uh, the forensic evidence reveals that she probably went to the rear of the boat to use the motor to kind of get some leverage yeah. to pull herself into the dinghy. Uh, it's something like a technique that swimmers kind of use to get into a dinghy. You can use the um, motor to put your foot on and kind of brace yourself and yeah. pull yourself up. Um, and they speculate that might be how the bruises on the back of her lower legs came about, like her swinging her leg up, trying to pull herself mm-hmm. up on the motor. Uh, that didn't work, and she couldn't get into the boat. And that time, she, at that point, she would be uh, frantic, trying to hoist her body into yeah. the dinghy. And the jacket is just dragging her down. Um, she finally would, at some point, realize that she was being swept uh, further and further out into the open sea. Uh and she was just panicking, fighting for her life, and trying to push the boat into a into a um, current that might push them uh, closer to sea. Because you know how currents work. You go over one foot, and you're going to go in a completely yeah. different direction. So at that point, they speculate that she figured, I get into this current, all I have to do is hang on to the boat. Yeah. If I get in the current, it will take me to shore. But at that point numbness would start to creep through her body she'd start getting hypothermia because the water is cold yeah so the combination of the heavy jacket pulling her down sapping her strength hypothermia starting to set in which will make you lose strength and lose consciousness uh and at some point she just couldn't hold on to the dinghy anymore and she sank below the waves and drowned uh they speculate that minutes after she let go the boat landed um on the shore. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's a pretty horrible. That's awful. Yeah. So Noguchi outlined his theory and he actually ran it by his staff because as I said before, he was sort of more panicked. They also pointed out like you're answering all these questions, but people want to know why she left the yacht in the middle of the night. Like 
that's sort of the question you haven't answered here. And the truth is he can't answer it based on forensic evidence. He actually ordered a psychological autopsy, which I've never heard of, to find out why Natalie would have felt like she had to separate herself from walking her husband that night. Um, the report came back in and he decided not to release it to the press because he had already been criticized for being gory and sensational. So um, that report did not alter the official coroner's conclusion of accidental drowning. Uh, and like I said, he never released it. But he actually um, still got um, demoted. Complaints from Frank Sinatra and the Screen Actors Guild, amongst others, continue to accuse him of sensationalizing his, sensationalizing his duties. And in uh, April of 1982, he was actually demoted. Wood was buried in Westwood Village Memorial Cemetery in Los Angeles, and a ton of huge stars came to her wedding, including Frank Sinatra, Elizabeth Taylor, uh, her Fred wedding Astaire, and her funeral? Her funeral. I'm sorry, did I say wedding? <laughs> yes. Uh, it's the same thing. <laughs> Rock Hudson, uh, Gregory Peck, like every every huge star. Olivier, um, Lawrence Olivier actually flew in from London to attend the um, service. Uh, and as I said, um, the story's never changed. Um, Ra Robert, Robert Wagner continued saying what he had said, that it was a happy cruise and they were having a great old time before the freak accident of her death. Christopher Walken rarely has said anything throughout the years. Uh, one of his only statements is the people who convinced are convinced that there was something more to it than what came out of the investigation will never be satisfied with the truth because the truth is there was nothing more to it. It was an accident. Um, Doubts about that theory, however, never died down, especially like in the tabloid press. And the principal reason for that is um, the only other person on the boat that night, Dennis Davern, who claims that something more sinister did happen. Sorry, Christopher Walken. The captain. Uh, yeah, Captain Dennis Davern. Now, uh, he initially gave a very similar statement, as I said before, as Wagner and Walken, they all had the party towed the party line on what had happened that night. Uh, and he is actually the one who's gotten these investigations reopened in uh, the last few years. He said his initial statement was incomplete, sanitizes, and in some places downright lies. Wow. Uh, he, he is the one who um, initially reported the quarreling. And next week, I'm going to get into Dennis Davern's version of what really happened, including the corroborating witnesses that recently uh, came out at the beginning of this month that brought the whole case back into the news. Uh, so that's that. Wow. <laughs> I had never known that amount of detail before about this case. Oh, really? No. There's more. Like, I'm insane right now. <laughs> I cannot wait to hear next week's. Uh, yeah, of the other theories about this. All I ever knew was that she fell off a boat and drowned and that it was possibly foul play. I mean, there were always, I had always heard. Right. Well, I do think like the interesting things with the affair and I mean, something was going on that That's night. That's what yeah. I want to know is like. <sighs> and Robert Wagner does come out with some other stories but I'm just going to get into all of that. Yeah, we'll this save like all of that. This is where we are at after she died two We can speculate later. what they were, right. why they were all hanging out together in yeah. the first place next week. So wow, you, yeah. good, fucking good research, <laughs> Thank you. That was like so much information. <laughs> you guys have to realize that Desi did, we didn't know this was going to be a two-part episode until last night. Right. So Desi did like two weeks worth of research in <laughs> one week. So this is like a lot. Yeah. 
Um, well, great. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Okay, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.